Hi everyone, welcome to the EFG podcast Beyond the Benchmark. My name is Mo Zafsal, I'm the Global Chief Investment Officer for EFG. And today we have the Macro A team again um, to take us through our quarterly insight. So this is the special uh, insight that we have where we go through the document. So uh, if you want to follow the story, please reach out uh, to us if you don't have access to it. Um, and uh, there's a quarterly insight market review that we go through. And the whole point of of this uh, podcast is really to go through it to maybe sort of peel the onion a little bit with respect to what we try to communicate with respect to the EFG a macro view and really draw out some of the themes or some of the other things that we've been talking about at, uh, at EFG. Feedback we've had has been very good so please do feedback if there are other things you would like to see from us on the uh, the Insight podcast. Who do we have on today? We have uh, Daniel Murray who many of you know, uh, Gianluigi Manrozato, uh, Stefan Gerlach, Joaquin Tall and uh, Paul Templeton. So we're going to start off with the overview section delving into the global recovery and what we call the bigger bounce. Uh, so, uh, Daniel, uh, I'll maybe bring you into this uh, section uh, with respect to uh, the bounce and some of the key things that we're looking at. Yeah, I think if we cast our minds back a year, I think it's uh, incredible to think where we are today and how far individual economies have advanced and how far the global economy has come. Because actually this time last year we were staring down the barrel of a pretty terrible experience. The world was in lockdown, huge amounts of uncertainty regarding uh, the future of people's lives and their, uh, their living. So, you know, really uncertain environment. So really it's been an incredible journey, of course, helped by huge amounts of um, government and uh, central bank stimulus. But uh, I think, you know, one of the ways in which we can think about the strength of that recovery is the fact that, Several economies are already at or above their pre-COVID peak. So China in particular got back to its pre-COVID peak pretty quickly last year. The US looks like it's about back to its pre-COVID peak. And most countries um, across the developed world look like they're going to get back to their pre-COVID peaks later this year or the first half of next year. So overall, I think if you'd offered that outcome to people this time last year, I think most people would have taken it. I think it's, it's a pretty good outcome. Now, I think... You know, what's happening is that naturally, um, as the gap between the pre-COVID peak and uh, actual levels of activity closes, and as the gap between potential and actual output closes, so you naturally expect growth to slow. So, of course, we've seen really rapid growth from a very low base, but uh, naturally, as um, the gap to growth potential uh, narrows, so you expect your growth to slow. So that's what we expect to happen um, next year and uh, into 2023. And there's nothing to worry about there. It's just a completely natural evolution of, uh, of growth and its recovery. Now, an accompanying question, and one that, that we're facing with increasing frequency at the moment, is that of inflation. You know, the, the question being, surely, in a world where there's so much stimulus, central banks are being so expansive, and uh, growth is so strong, isn't uh, surely inflation going to be a problem? And, and our view is that it's not going to be a problem. We have seen a, a spike in inflation recently, that's largely due to the base effect, by which I mean the fact that this time last year, inflation took a big dive, and so the year-over-year comparisons actually look very easy. But the base effect should be peaking about now, and we expect inflation to soften into the year end. It may well end up a little bit higher than it did pre-COVID, but uh, nothing much to worry about. 
In that regard, of course, there's always opportunity to be wrong. And being an economist, we face that reality quite a lot. But um, uh, the, the two sort of things I think to look out for on the inflation side of things, one is that uh, in some industries and some parts of the world, there are notable labour shortages. So because we've seen a big snapback in activity, there hasn't always been the supply of labour necessary to satisfy that demand. So that, that's one potential source of um, of uh, inflation doesn't appear to be a problem at the moment and our view is that whilst there might be selective pockets it's not thought to be a, a huge scale problem and uh, the second aspect that's also received a lot of attention is that of supply chain short shortages whether in uh, you know, manufactured goods or semiconductors and again you know this is something that might selectively be a problem going forward but in general we can already see that some of those supply chains are loosening up a bit and um, uh, the pressures from there, we think will subside. Yeah, it's quite interesting. Are, are there quite interesting, certainly with respect to the supply shortages? We've seen, for example, the second-hand car market has exploded, or certainly in prices-wise at least, rather than volume, where um, it's been very, given the primary car market is, is finding very hard to bring cars onto the market, it has meant that the, the second-hand car market is has stayed very, very tight and it's quite extraordinary to see prices for second-hand cars in some cases up 30 or 40% compared to what they were 12 months ago uh, or 18 months ago. It is quite um, concerning, although I suspect it will also alleviate with uh, with time once the primary market is, uh, is open. Uh, another point um, that kind of came through, uh, th- through this article was around uh, productivity and trends around uh, productivity. Um, and I guess the importance of infrastructure with respect to that. And uh, you can't help thinking that as we move forward, that if infrastructure remains or digital infrastructure remains weak, that that will have, will, will I guess, further create the divide between the haves and have-nots. And uh, that ultimately could be a problem a little bit later on. I'm going to just ask Paul to uh, just dive in on this particular aspect. Paul, you you, you had a, a comment which I always find quite interesting from Paul Krugman, which is productivity isn't everything, but in the long run it is almost everything. Which uh, yeah, I mean, I'm a big fan of Paul Krugman, and I know that means that many other economists say, oh, surely not. Um, but I think it's a great comment, isn't it? And, you know, long-term growth depends on population growth and how many of those people work, but more importantly, productivity trends. And we know that productivity trends have been weak recently. And do we get, you know, back to higher levels of productivity? And then I really tried to put some numbers on what we need for global infrastructure spending. Um, It's very, very hard. I mean, if you, you know, there's a shortage in emerging economies in particular of things like transport and sanitation, water and so on. But we need this extra infrastructure spending uh, to combat climate change. And coming up with a number for that is really very, very difficult indeed. Now, you don't need it if you were to do, or you don't need so much if you were to do other things like uh, tax carbon emissions, the favoured proposal of the IMF, for example. But if you're not going to tax carbon emissions, and so many countries have found that very difficult to do, then I I view it as it's either taxation or technology. So the alternative is sort of technological change, more infrastructure spending uh, to, to counter that. And the number you come up with 
on that basis is something like sort of a trillion dollars uh, a year, probably a bit more than that, 50 trillion over 30 years. And you think, gosh, that's just a huge number. How on earth can we afford it? Uh, but we've spent 16 trillion on COVID measures so far. Uh, so maybe our priorities just change a bit. Maybe we think, oh, in a year and a bit, we've spent 16 trillion globally. And to sort of contain temperatures to two degrees centigrade above the pre-pandemic level, uh, pre, pre-industrial levels, uh, cost maybe twice that, then it makes it sound a more reasonable bill if you want to look at it in that perspective. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and I guess um, um, moving on to the second section is, is on the three Cs. I'm going to I'm gonna stay with you just for a second to talk about uh, global CO2 emissions. You mentioned actually just a little bit uh, earlier, um, you talked about um, the uh, carbon monitoring data. And actually yeah. the latest data is actually um, a pickup in CO2 emissions back to where they were pre-pandemic. Just about. Yeah, uh, because most of it's due to uh, the rebound in China and then later on a bit sort of in the United States. So uh, on carbon emissions, and I have not seen this reported so widely as yet, it looks as though we're back up to 2019 levels in terms of gigatons of CO2. I suppose the comparison here is with the global financial crisis when we did have a big decline in activity big reduction in CO2 emissions and back up to where we were, you know, before the GFC really very quickly. It looks like that. Now, we know that some regions are doing a great deal. You know, Europe is much more successful than than other regions. Uh, But when you look at the increase from the emerging economies, in particular from China, it's very difficult. An economic rebound, which you all wanted to see, brings this unfortunate uh, side effect. And then it takes you into this other big area, which you've discussed many times, Moe, about international cooperation versus tripolar world and whether or not we do come together and do something on that front. Well, we all hope so, obviously. But this is a more difficult starting point than we thought just a a few months ago. Mm. Yeah. It's been, in the sense, it's been reversed. Mm. Exactly. I think this time, uh, 12 months ago, or, or maybe a little bit more, 14 or 15 months ago, the air was very clear, <laughs> pretty much in most, in pretty most uh, cities, and we kind of got used to it for a while. Let's move on then, obviously, as part of this um, uh, climate change, we, we call it three Cs, climate change, cars and copper. Um, obviously... Um, electric cars continue to garner a lot of attention um, and a lot of momentum around um, the auto companies and and their electric initiatives. Um, with many now, you know, um, committing to being completely electric in uh, say five or or, or, or ten years, um, which obviously changes the shape of of the commodity landscape and. I guess particularly um, copper. So, uh, January, Jenny, sort of thoughts, you know, um, naturally, and we have a chart here, is chart number number six. Naturally, one would have thought that if electric cars took off, um, other than lots of flying cars, but if we had electric cars took off, we'd have um, huge amount of demand for copper and no demand for oil. 
Uh, what's your what's your current take on 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 those particular um, uh, situations? No, indeed, this is clearly a, a structural trend that is only just uh, beginning. Because uh, despite being having grown very fast, uh, the, the the number of electric cars and the sh- and the, and their share of the total car market on a global scale is still quite uh, negligible. Uh, but that is expected to change pretty rapidly. Already by the end of the decade, they will represent a much larger share. And going forward with uh, many companies and countries uh, wanting to go fully electric by the end of the decade, uh, you can only expect uh, a further jump in, in the next uh, decade. And and that will come along with an increased demand for, for copper, uh, particularly specifically when it comes to uh, the car industry. But more generally, you want also to have you know the grids to distribute this energy uh, which you source now from renewable uh, instead of uh, fossil fuels. And and of course, you need then also aluminium or nickel, which is also a component particularly for car because it is related to the battery industry and the storage of, of electricity. <clears throat> so you, you would expect that um, these trends uh, continue. And given that it, the, the expected increase in demand is uh, quite uh, you know sharper than the um, likelihood of uh, finding a vast amount uh, of, of new mines of these metals, pressure on prices will only build up over time. And given the high degree of uh, um, substitutability and complementarity of the four main uh, industrial metals, which are copper, nickel, aluminium, and zinc, you would expect that the common trend that uh, characterized them over the past uh, 20 years will continue over the next decades too. And uh, obviously that sort of dovetails nicely into what Paul was mentioning earlier in terms of 50 or trillion dollars that needs to be spent to tackle climate change and uh, you know we're, we, we've um, unfortunately or, or or had to I guess no choice but to prioritize COVID over over um, a, a deeper seated problem that will take many many years to um, uh, to cover off um, so moving then on to uh, the next uh, page page four on the asset market performance and there generally has been a pretty decent year in terms of uh, market performance, it's only to, to, to the mid- second or to the first half to the end of June, up around 13% uh, or so for world equities, which is um, particularly strong. And um, bond markets probably have done a bit better than people thought, certainly until the end of the first quarter where it wasn't looking particularly good. But uh, we've certainly seen um, concerns around the sort of Delta variant. We are seeing now kind of lockdowns in in, in China, we are seeing lockdowns in Australia and other parts suggesting that um, maybe growth or, or we won't be as robust as uh, possibly we thought it. And in, in fact, Q2 probably in terms of peak intensity of GDP is, is, is probably about right. But we it's not going to be a straight line improvement, which uh, certainly the bond market seem to be suggesting to us. And indeed, the inflation, certainly for now, is uh, is a problem that we need to worry about probably later. Uh, so that turns then on to the the, the next uh, topic and certainly the United States and the economy. And um, and uh, Stefan, I guess the 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 Fed's dilemma, or as we just describe it, just the, what the Fed does for a day job. Um, what's your <laughs> what's your thoughts around that balance between inflation? stimulation and obviously employment 
Yeah, I think that's a particularly hard question in the uh, at the current juncture. Uh, we do see, we have seen quite strong uh, inflation pressures in the U.S. Uh, this year. Some of that is because um, uh, we had deflation actually in the U.S. last spring. Uh, prices fell as the COVID pandemic started, and once these uh, observations fall out of the calculation of the 12-month inflation rate that sort of tends to raise the 12-month inflation rate uh, quite um, quite strongly. Um, but we've also seen, uh, for the, and you, you mentioned car prices already, we've also seen that, that the inflation now, monthly inflation this spring has been very strong, in particular car prices explain something like one-third of the increase in inflation. So we've seen strong inflation, um, stronger than I think the Fed anticipated. Um, but on the, and, and we've seen very strong growth, but surprisingly, the unemployment rate hasn't moved very much. It has moved, uh, I think, half a percent uh, this year, although the economy is growing at at, uh, at 7 percent. So this is really a dilemma for the Fed. Um, should it worry about inflation and then sort of move forward in time, uh, the tightening of monetary policy, or should it focus more on the unemployment rate and sit tight and wait. That is the very difficult call, I think. And the Fed has this view that it ought to it ought to wait. Inflation is uh, is transitory, uh, and we, we we have to wait for a while, and we can we should go slow and so on and so forth. But it may very well be that inflation proves, proves to be stronger and uh, than anticipated. The dynamics end up being stronger, and then the Fed may very quickly change its its view. I mean, the Fed is not infallible. Um, it does a good uh, job in, in general, but there, it's easy to find uh, episodes when, they, when the markets have been right uh, um, and the Fed has been wrong. I mean, most recently, 2018, the markets started to anticipate a relaxation of monetary policy much faster than the Fed did. So it's a very hard, hard situation. Uh, I think Daniel gave uh, a good summary of our view. We think that inflation is um, is, is largely temporary, uh, and the economy is doing very well, and that suggests to us that perhaps uh, the Fed is going to start scaling back relatively early on, in, in a sense, probably announce in September at, at the Jackson Hole Conference or late August. Um, announce tapering will start, let's say, in early in early 2022, and perhaps we'll have a tightening of monetary policy, of interest rate policy, 12 months or so after that. It could be earlier than so. It's it's hard to say. But I mean, yeah, sure. The Fed is really in a sticky situation, but that's our sort of uh, our analysis of the of the uh, of the lay of the land, if you like. And I think what's interesting is is chart 12 actually shows, and that paragraph shows this message from the bond markets, which I find quite actually interesting message from the bond market certainly over the last few weeks has been um, that possibly the tail risk of inflation has been ruled out or certainly that seems to 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 reflect in the rally of the long end or the flattening of the yield curve compared to what it was in in say may even uh, and the dollar strength um, as well just just kind of reinforces that credibility that the federal reserve has and maybe Certainly, at this stage, taking out the tail risk of uh, of inflation or or unsustainable inflation, it's certainly the the way that we think about it. Now, um, moving then on to the UK, I, I think Daniel similar uh, s- similar story really strong economic growth, and I guess the, probably the first tests of how the UK performs under under Brexit um, and whether you know it does lead to 
one of the themes that certainly we've been talking about at EFG is is this higher inflation rate in the UK as a result of as a result of Brexit and inflexibility of labour. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, there were, at the beginning of the crisis, the UK had a particularly bad experience and arguably was slow to the game in terms of the government imposing restrictions on society and so forth. But actually, the, the government has done really well in making sure that the vaccine programme has been really quickly rolled out in the UK. And that's been associated, of course, with the relaxation of various restrictions and a bit of an increasing confidence and you know, a strong rebound in activity, as indeed we've seen in much of the rest of the world. And that rebound supported, again, by lots of policy stimulus. But I think, you know, we're not out of the woods yet and hopes that there's going to be a hugely sharp rebound in consumption because of the high savings rates built up um, over the past year. I think those hopes are probably a little bit overplayed. And there's a couple of reasons for that. The first is that there's still a huge amount of job uncertainty out there. It is uh, it's not spread evenly across society. It's, it's uh, specific to certain groups. But, you know, it's notable that we have the end of furlough programmes looming large later this year. And that's likely to add an extra degree of uncertainty to labour markets, which in turn, of course, is likely to um, negatively impact uh, the consumption outlook. So that's one reason why um, we think uh, you know, consumption is not it's going to be terribly weak, but perhaps might not be as strong as some people expect. Um, the second reason is just that in this new uncertain world, people are understandably a bit more cautious about doing things like going to the theatre or going to cinemas. And, and it's true that anyway... Um, these sorts of places where members of the public meet and interact, um, they might anyway have reduced capacity, uh, for example, because they have to separate seats or so forth. So a couple of reasons there why we think um, the, the snapback in consumption might not be quite as strong in the UK as some people think. Uh, you mentioned Brexit earlier, and you also mentioned inflation, and the two are not unrelated. Um, so as with other parts of the world, this sharp rebound in activity um, is this been associated with uh, question marks over the outlook for inflation. And in the UK, that's compounded by potential um, supply chain shocks um, resulting from Brexit. So, for example, we know that um, labour supply has you know, it's been more difficult to employ foreign labourers to do things such as fruit picking in the UK, and that naturally has a cost increase. It's also true that uh, historically the UK economy had... Um, uh, you know, has been more prone to higher inflation for various reasons than some other economies. So we're keeping our eye closely on that. We we do think that inflation will follow the same broad trends in, in other parts of the world. And we think that um, the Bank of England is going to be quite slow to react. It's got uh, quite a, a big window of opportunity and, and there's no need for it to panic, even if inflation does spike up um, to uh, above or close to its 3% upper target level. But we, we think that uh, uh, whilst inflation will remain well behaved, it's certainly worth keeping an extra eye on in the UK for those reasons. And of course, um, uh, you know, that has uh, implications for, for sterling and for gilts, which um, clearly if inflation does move a bit higher than that, does uh, raise question marks over interest rate policy and also over uh, gilts. But uh, we think that those uncertainties over Brexit in particular are going to keep a lid on uh, both sterling and on the gilt market. Very good. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Daniel. So let's uh, cross the channel into the Eurozone and uh, Gianluigi. So quick thoughts on uh, the European recovery and um, and obviously, you know, some of the constraints to um, to, to growth are there, uh, but maybe some some more interesting developments around climate and green. 
Yes, indeed. Uh, when you look at the recovery in the Eurozone, you cannot but feel a bit disappointed when comparing that with UK and, and the US. Uh, part of the reason is a less aggressive fiscal response, although even in, in the Eurozone, fiscal policy has been used, compounding uh, the, the, the support from monetary policy. But overall, uh, the use of this uh, level of policy was much uh, less pronounced. Uh, it is also true, however, that we uh, have uh, been only seeing uh, the, the tips of, the, of it, particularly when it comes to the European Recovery and Resilience Pact uh, plan, which is only about to, to start being uh, actually deployed, and that will exert its effects possibly next year when uh, also, according to, for instance, OECD, projections, growth in Eurozone will be, relatively speaking, a bit better than, than elsewhere because of less of a pushback from, from fiscal policy. Having said that, um, there remains a, a longer-term constraints, as you mentioned. One uh, that you know, stands out is, of course, demographics, which is quite uh, adverse for, for, for European, continental Europe in particular. And that, uh, of course, as textbook economics uh, teaches us uh, can only be overcome by, uh, with an increase in productivity. And that is uh, unfortunately hard to achieve, particularly if you always constrain investment even uh, in infrastructure. Now that can change thanks to the Recovery and Resilience Pact, but also uh, to the renewed attention to climate change, where Europe indeed is at the forefront uh, when compared to the other uh, main economic blocks. Also, uh, because of that, uh, the European financial industry is a bit at the forefront when it comes to issuance of green bonds and green-related uh, financial instruments. And that can also be uh, a, you know, a welcome addition to growth potential over the next three years. Absolutely. So moving then into the Alps, uh, into Switzerland, and obviously the Swiss economy, we, we, we call this back on track economic growth uh, in Switzerland uh, continues to, to, to recover. But uh, generally, your focus certainly in this article has been a little bit more on the public pension reform that is obviously garnering a lot of attention uh, in Switzerland. Maybe we can do a bit of a summary of, uh, of, of the key aspects to that. Yes, the, the, the Federal Council, the, the Swiss government, uh, proposed a, a reform which aims at uh, consolidating the and the first pillar, the public pension system, uh, which accounts for about one third of the overall pension benefits that uh, you know workers receive when when they retire, uh, that is because over the years uh, and, and due to population aging, uh, that uh, that fund turned into into a deficit, which has been growing over the years, and that uh, hole has been only temporarily fixed with uh, an increased transfer from the public, uh, from, from general taxation. But over the years, that is, uh, of course, uh, uh, unsurmountable without uh, a change. The proposed change is really uh, uh, only a drop in the water because the, the proposed change is to increase uh, women retirement age to 65 years of age from 64, which would match the uh, retirement age of men. The issue is that in Switzerland, retirement age, uh, statutory retirement age, has not changed since the uh, institution of the public pension system, which was back in 1954, 44, so immediately after the end of the Second World War. And over the uh, over the 70 years that have uh, gone by, uh, life expectancy have risen by about 20 years. 
And in fact, already now, life expectancy uh, for people aged 60 years, it's already 25 years. Of course, that is, is a challenge that is uh, common to all European and, and developed countries, mainly continental European countries and Japan, as we know. And in fact, other countries took a much more aggressive stance uh, at that, raising pension age by one or two years of age beyond 65. That would not only be uh, helpful also to uh, the Swiss pension system, it will also be helpful to Swiss households because that would raise the level of pension benefits when they retire, uh, when we retire, possibly. <laughs> and uh, at the same time, would reduce the need for, for extra saving uh, during uh, uh, working age. And that, as a consequence, would uh, you know free resources for current consumption and uh, will also reduce the risk of uh, a more aggressive intervention uh, down the road to kind of fix the problem uh, with the public pension system, which would only be looking at, uh, you know, reducing pension benefits or raising taxation. That would be detrimental to corporate uh, competitiveness. So raising pension age would fix uh, a lot of issues for the Swiss economy over the longer run. Although it is hard to achieve because of the political system, which... Uh, is a, a democratic, direct democracy. So previous attempts to reform the pension system failed because they have been rejected by the people when put to a referendum. This is a big issue. Hopefully, will be tackled appropriately, but uh, is a big risk for long-term prospect for the Swiss economy. Can't get over the fact that everything needs to go to a referendum, <laughs> and uh, and obviously, um, c- certainly something like this does does mean that uh, um, people typically wouldn't vote necessarily for it, um, given it uh, certainly would be against them. Um, uh, indeed, a big dilemma. So um, moving then on to, to Asia, uh, and Paul, we we delve into um, China market liberalisation. Talk about, obviously, we have the Equity Connect already, we had Bond Connect, and now the new innovation, the Wealth Connect. Maybe you can uh, fill us in. Uh, well, the way we, we set this is in the context of China's general development of its economy and financial markets over time. And I think what we've written here is touched with a little bit of envy, maybe, <laughs> because it all looks as though it's really going quite well. Now, of course, we've had the 100th anniversary of the launch of the Chinese Communist Party. You've probably seen all the celebrations on the TV and so on. And the way I'm thinking about it here is, Economic development, although there have been many, many sceptics, has generally gone rather well and rather smoothly. But the one thing that China has not done as yet is liberalised to any great extent the capital account. Now, there have been some changes at the sort of edge with the interconnect system. But now Wealth Connect, where you can have uh, 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 movements in either direction of up to 150 billion renminbi between mainland China and Hong Kong is uh, a significant development in the direction of capital account liberalisation. It also goes along with this aim to try and increase the international usage of the renminbi. And I think just, just going back a little bit to the Eurozone comment that we wrote, a bit of a competition going on here in terms of you know who's going to be the alternative to the us dollar um formerly the european council want the euro to have a much greater international role 
Uh, but China's come along really quite quickly in that respect, especially uh, holdings by central banks. Now, two and a half percent of global foreign exchange reserves uh, are in renminbi, still a low level, but it's increasing very substantially. So I suppose that the, the issue we're talking about here is, does that mean that China, this next stage of China's development, financial market liberalization, internationalization of the renminbi, wealth connect, um, will go as well as development of the overall economy? A lot of British people tend to be very sceptical about all of this, of course. And uh, I initially sort of talked about China as a centrally planned economy until Stefan very robustly said, it's not really, Paul, because there's a very big private sector. And of course, he's, he's absolutely right. But still, the point here is, will it continue to go smoothly? Uh, China's GDP per head is a quarter of that of the US. And so my way of putting a, a touch of scepticism into this discussion was, hey, that looks great. Uh, economic reform's gone very well. Now it's financial market liberalization. That looks as though it's going quite smoothly. It's all very well planned. Um, but people thought Japan was the biggest success story in the world at the start of the 1990s. And we compared Japan's GDP per head with the Asian tigers. Japan has gone relatively backwards. So it used to be more successful than any of the tiger economies. Now it's less successful than any of the tiger economies. So there's no guarantee that this will all go smoothly. What brings sort of development in uh, rapidly growing emerging economies to a halt? So, you know, some lessons were well, one thing. Um, Korea in particular comes to mind, is that uh, financial liberalization gets too fast and that upsets sort of development. In Korea's case, that was too rapid credit growth. So it's still a very difficult balancing act. Um, looks as though they got it right, but an element of caution. Yeah, no, I think that uh, certainly is warranted because this next phase is probably not going to be as easy no. Um, because it's, I guess it's less dependent on forces they can control. <laughs> it's probably the way that I'd maybe describe it. Uh, there's uh, there's pro probably less uh, less influence uh, internally. Um, again, very interesting indeed. Uh, so we'll uh, switch uh, continents very quickly to uh, to Latin America and uh, Joaquin. It is all about the politics. Yeah, that's right. It's it's all about the politics once again. Uh, and it has been uh, for for the past year. I think this whole political landscape that that is changing across the the region is due to to COVID to, to some extent and and its effects that it had on on growth, on on public finances, on uh, inflation and employment uh, and inequality pretty much uh, across the region. Just remember, uh, some of the of the countries had already started the process of of implementing some reforms. I can think of. Uh, maybe Brazil, the, the pension reform that was approved pre-COVID, um, but now everything got, was kind of put on, on hold. They've uh, made some progress in terms of privatizations um, uh, from the electrical company that they want to do this before the end of the year, but uh, there's no progress on, on tax. Um, and Colombia, for example, also the, the proposed tax reform that, that, um, that was uh, intended to go through, through Congress ended up costing Minister Carrasquilla his, um, his position. And, and it, it, it turned out to, um, 
to trigger a lot of social protests, which are which are still going. So, um, yeah, elections in, in Ecuador that, that have recently uh, put new more conservative uh, government in power in Peru with a, a, a much more uh, left wing candidate that's going to be announced anytime soon. Um, so yeah, it's a, a lot of politics that are starting to play, and and the more we, we get into um, uh, the elections, midterm elections in Argentina and the elections in Brazil next year, the more difficult it's going to be for some of these countries to pass very um, uh, very big reforms uh, from 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 now on. Um, so yeah, it's gonna it's gonna remain to be a political PC environment. It's gonna be uh, uh, political volatility is probably the right way mm-hmm. to describe. Uh, describe it i guess it'd been relatively benign well up until the last 12 months but yes. previously it was relatively benign yeah um i guess the the spark is always i guess um the the rights we saw in chile um That's was, right. was probably the spark that uh, led everything going on but uh, certainly uh, i know some of our geopolitical uh, colleagues will certainly maybe even point to uh, venezuela's influence and uh, and how they um i guess how population migration certainly so finds its way yeah. across uh, colombia and uh, and further south so uh, again fascinating uh, developments uh, so um we move then on to the the final section which is the special focus and um uh, financial this uh, financial disruption so you know certainly we've always talked about these kind of these three ingredients that have driven uh, disruption so uh, you know very simply uh, put um, an industry doesn't change very much uh, where customer experience has been relatively small uh, 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 change has been relatively uh, poor and their customer experience has been relatively poor um, but um, the other ones uh, are the people who are making lots of money in the in the third is technology and regulation uh, does change so um uh, Paul, um, uh, maybe you can sort of articulate that a little bit better than I did, and more importantly, the Philippon developments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I've been looking at the Philippon work for a bit, and we thought about putting this in this publication before. Um, it's a significant piece uh, of work because what he does is he goes back to the 1880s. I mean, so in other words, when banks like JP Morgan uh, were first uh, were first formed and shows that uh, the returns uh, to scale in, in finance are broadly constant. So it's always about one and a half to two percent of intermediated assets. Intermediated assets, financial assets, and I've used a measure here similar to Philippon's, which is you know, basically uh, public debt and, and, and equity to sort of taken together, uh, have grown very substantially. I mean, they dipped in the financial crisis, but are now back up at a new peak. And yeah, still one and a half to two percent. It's two percent in the latest year. Uh, is the returns to the intermediaries in the sort of financial sector. So they do quite well out of that. And the other thing, I heard this on your podcast sort of originally about the age of companies in the US MSCI Financials Index. Uh, The 10 largest companies in that index have got an average age, a median age of 151 years, which is astonishing because... I keep hearing all these statistics about the broad S&P index, talking about the average life of a company there is 
20 years or so because it's got all these new tech companies and so on. In the financial sector, it is 151 years for the largest 10 on average. They go back to the 19th century in a lot of cases. Um, And we know the customer experience is poor in many areas, retail banking sort of in particular. And along come these new startups, the app-based startups. Now, of course, it doesn't mean it's either one or the other because lots of experience recently of companies buying startup sort of app-based finance companies as well. So it is an absolutely fascinating sort of area. And if the constant returns to scale persist, there's a lot of money to be made in it, certainly. Yeah. Absolutely. And I guess whoever comes out of it the other side is going to be very, very powerful. Uh, certainly we've seen you know, uh, tens of billions, if not hundreds of billions of um, wealth being created from some of these startups. And uh, you know, one area that we didn't cover in, in this particular piece, but uh, and something we probably should look at uh, at another time, is is some of the challenges in, in Africa or Latin America and others that are now offering banking services to the unbanked um, and uh, you know what potentially that does for those economies and, and the region uh, as well, given given that a large swathe of population have just been out of the loop with respect to um, their digital finance. Uh, again, a, a very interesting and fascinating topic. Uh, so with that, um, um, that concludes our, our roundup of the insight. And... Uh, um, hope you found that very, very helpful and very, very useful. Uh, gentlemen, thank you very much for your time today um, for taking us through that. And uh, no doubt we'll hear from you again next quarter. Uh, thanks, everybody, and have a great day. Thank you.